you have your Bibles this morning, we're going to be in Luke chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there's some on the sides of the tech booth back there. Please feel free to go back there and borrow one if you need to borrow one. If you um, need to you know, just have one because you don't have a Bible that you can read and understand easily, it's a great translation. It's the translation I'll be um, preaching from this morning. Uh, we, if you have one of those Bibles in particular, we're going to be on page 856. This is Luke chapter 1. Um, during this season that we call Advent, this anticipation uh, of, of the birth of Jesus and of his, uh, his arrival here um, on the planet as a human, um, <clears throat> we've been, each of these Sundays leading up to the Christmas uh, has a particular theme that we focus on. And the way that we've kind of conceived this or conceptualized this over the past a couple of weeks and uh, today and then next week as well is that we're looking at texts. Uh, in the scripture that are songs, that are uh, hymns or, or poetry, things that people often sing. And today is no different. We're going to be looking at that. And so we've been thinking along these lines of kind of Christmas songs. And each Sunday, we've tried to have almost a lyric uh, that could stick in your mind. One of you said to me just a, a moment ago as we were greeting one another, said, hey, the, the thing that you talked about last week that is just stuck in my mind, that's what we want. We want these lyrics, if you will, to just stick, to just lodge in your mind. And so um, the first week of Advent, is the uh, it's the the focus, if you will, is hope. And what we said about that, what we said about that was that hope uh, is is fueled by God God's faithfulness. So this is the way God's faithfulness fuels our hope. That's the primary way that we uh, uh, thought about and looked at hope a, a few Sundays ago, a couple of Sundays ago. Uh, if he's faithful then, he'll be faithful now. If he's faithful there, he'll be, he will be uh, faithful here. If he's faithful with them, he'll be faithful with us. And even though the promises may not be the same, the fact that he's a promise-keeping God can fuel something inside of us hope. So no matter what we're facing, no matter how dark the darkness is, uh, no matter how pitch black it may seem, uh, no matter how rocky or uneven the soil or terrain may seem as we try to navigate life, how tumultuous the seas are. There's always room for us um, to have hope because God is faithful. And if God's faithful, then there's a, there's, a, there's a place for us to root ourselves and to draw fuel from in order to have hope. That was two weeks ago. Uh, and then this past, excuse me, this past Sunday, uh, we talked about peace. This kind of all-encompassing uh, sense of wholeness and well-being about us. Um, when we talk about peace, we're talking about it uh, guarding our hearts and our minds, that it is something that, if you will, fortresses us. It surrounds us. It makes us safe to know that uh, even though the circumstances may be crazy in our lives, that we can have a sense of wholeness about ourselves, um, not because of who we are, but because of who God is. And so the lyric, if you will, for last week was that peace is a byproduct of focus on God. When we lock eyes with who God is and, and what he's about and what he's like, that our circumstances, um, they, they may not change at all. But you know what happens is that they get put into proper perspective. Whether or not, you know, it's, it's just mountainous and terrible or whether or not it's, you know, whatever's going on over here and it's just turbulent. If you see God for who he is, circumstances become what they are. And they're put in proper perspective. So peace is a byproduct of focus on God. And the lyric for today, the Sunday of joy, what I want to encourage you to take home with you and hold on to is this, is that joy expands when the kingdom comes. Joy expands when the kingdom comes. 
you could find this 10,000 places in the scripture, I think. The place where I see it and see it often and uh, is in the parables of Jesus. One of the places um, where uh, you see it is this uh, uh, place in Matthew 13. Jesus said, the kingdom of God's like this. A guy's uh, walking along in a field, stubs his toe, uh, opens it, like, what's going on? Opens, finds a box, opens it up. It's a treasure. In his joy, it says. In his joy, he goes and sells everything that he has and, and, and buys the field. There's this sense in which there was this moment, this encounter with the kingdom of God, and then joy just began to expand from there. And that today is really what we're after. And so in, in Luke chapter 1, I want to invite you Take a uh, look at these verses with me. Just give you just a touch of backstory here. First part of Luke, again, we looked at this a couple of weeks ago. First part of Luke is about um, Zechariah and Elizabeth, who are the parents of John the Baptist. Uh, they, are, they had their part of the story here in verse 26, just as Gabriel appeared to Zechariah. <clears throat> so Gabriel also appears to Mary, uh, who becomes the mother of Jesus. The responses are very different. Zechariah says, how will I know this? As if God you can't really pull this off, right? Mary's response was very different. Oh, well, how are you going to do this? How will this be? That's a response of faith. Um, because faith and, 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 and um, obedience, we'll talk about this here in just a second, those two things go together so often. Even when there's doubt, there's such an important thing for us to be uh, obedient even when we have questions. So this is how Gabriel appeared to Mary. Hey, you're going to have a kiddo. She's like, oh, well, this will be interesting to see how all this shakes out. Okay. Uh, and um, then she goes um, to visit um, Elizabeth. This is where we pick up the story in verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country uh, to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. If you grew up Catholic, you know that language from the rosary. Uh, verse 43, that's, that's where it comes from, right there. Verse 43, And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb did what? Leaped for joy. Uh, and blessed, verse 45, is she who believed that there would be fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the word. And then here's where we pick up Mary's song, often called the Magnificat. And Mary said, verse 46, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit does what? Rejoices. My spirit rejoices in God, uh, my Savior. So with all the craziness that Mary's life was then, hey, there's an angel that appears to you. And by the way, you're a virgin, you're going to get pregnant. And he's going to be the Messiah and deliver people from their sins. Okay, I'm not sure how all this is going to shake out, but okay. With all the craziness that was Mary's life, her response is joy. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And so the question that I want to try to get and look at this morning, I was thinking about this this week, like, what? I mean, there's a lot of responses that I would have had. Why joy, Mary? Why joy? That's the question. And I think the text here provides us with some answers. Uh, the first one is this. Why, why joy? In the middle of all your craziness, Mary, why joy? First of all, because God worked on her behalf. God worked on her behalf. Um, he saw her as she was, weak, troubled, inexperienced, young, all of this kind of stuff, uh, and he still worked on her behalf. Look at verse 48. Let's back up. 
Read verse 46 on. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Why? Because, or for, he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. God worked on her behalf. He saw her as she was with all of the stuff, with all of the doubts, with all of the troubles, with all the quandaries, with all the questions, with all the stuff that was going on in the world. And he said, hey, listen, I'm working on your behalf. And that looked like two very different things, uh, not different, but relate, uh, you know, somewhat unrelated things. It looked like one, um, she was fully known and still fully loved. And folks, if that's true for Mary, guess who it's also true for? You. I mean us, but you. If it's true for Mary, it's also true for you. It's fully known and fully loved. God knew everything that was going on in her heart, all the questions, all the the troubles, all the wonderings, all the things that she was trying to process and work through, all the emotions that came with those things, all of the dark places that some of the questions led her. Like God knew, fully known and fully loved. That's the message of the gospel. Because God didn't just do that for Mary. He knows that for you. He knows what's going on in your world. He knows where your trouble spots are, what your addictive behaviors are, what your run-to vices are when stress gets too much. God knows what's going on in your world. He knows the dark places um, where the questions kind of linger, and you're like, "Ah, I'm not even sure I want to open that door and see what's going on there. He knows the problems that you're encountering and the struggles that you're having. He knows the strife that's in your marriage and the worries that you have for your kids and all the other things that are going on. He knows, and yet he says... Fully loved. You're fully known and you're fully loved. Most of us try to relate to God um, like this. Like in prayer, you're going to go to God and you're like, hey God, it's me again and everything's all right. Just wanted you to know God's like, everything's all right. Why are we here talking? If, you're, if, that's all, if, all, if that's all the game you're bringing to the table, man, why are we even here having a conversation? Most of us relate to God on, on, on we kind of take this pretense into the presence of God as if he doesn't already fully know, as if we're going to say something that surprises him, like, well, God, this is kind of where I am today. God'd be like, what? Jesus, tweet that, will you? I mean, like, fire that off, because I can't believe it. You're serious? You're like that? As if we're going to catch him off guard or surprise him in some way. Instead, God says, oh, I actually know that very much about you. And I'm really glad you're here, because I love you, and I'm glad that we can have a chance to talk about that. Fully known, fully loved. He, we're not, we don't relate to God on the basis of who we're pretending to be, and we don't relate to God on the basis of who we wish we were. Oh, well, God, I kind of wish I was like, yeah, I wish you were like that too. So let's get about the process of making that happen, not just letting you live in that realm where you're not actually who, uh, who, who, who that person is. She was fully known and fully loved. That's true of her. That's true of you and me too. Secondly, she was fully known and also wholly useful. Like with all of her doubts and with all of her questions, she was still fully known and wholly useful. Why? Why was this? And why, why are we going here? Why is this important? Uh, look at verse 45. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Mary heard the, 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 the message from Gabriel, go, went, I'm not sure how that's going to work out, but I believe that that's going to happen. She Um, was willing to let her faith lead her to obedience instead of her doubt shackling her in disobedience. Sometimes we use our doubt and the questions about the process of how it's all going to work out to keep us in the same place instead of following in obedience. Maybe we need to just back that up, just try that one more time, because it seemed like that sat down on some people. She, Mary, 
The reason we're talking about her today, one of the many reasons we're talking about her today, is because she was willing to let her faith lead her to obedience, even when she had questions. She was willing to let her faith lead her to obedience instead of letting her doubt shackle her into disobedience to not let her move. Sometimes the doubt that we have about the process, about how it's all going to shape out, about the consequences of our obedience or whatever, however it's going to, we let that keep us from obeying. And I'm telling you, Mary's going, hey, she was, Mary's saying, challenging us today, the only reason I'm wholly useful to God is because I was willing to let my faith lead to obedience. May it be true of us too. May it be true of us. Uh, the only people who aren't useful to God are the unrepentant and the proud. It doesn't matter how your pride, or the, the, the shape, if you will, or how the pride expresses itself, uh, but the unrepentant and the proud, those are the people that God uh, can't use, won't use. I ran across this tweet this uh, week. It was a quote somebody put up on Twitter, and uh, it, I just kind of ran into it. And it's one of those things where I ran into it, and then it just climbed all up over me, and you're like, hey, get off, get off, and it wouldn't do that. Listen to this quote. A repentant pastor with a repentant people is God's most powerful instrument for ministry. One more time. A repentant pastor with a repentant people is God's most powerful instrument for ministry. It's the prideful and the unrepentant that he doesn't use. It's those who step out in faith, even when they have questions, even when they're struggling, those who step out in faith. That's who God does use. He used her powerfully. He wrote her into his story. And as he says here in verse 48, all generations will call me blessed. He who is mighty has done great things for me. And joy, because she encountered the kingdom in that moment, joy expands when the kingdom comes. Because the kingdom came to Mary right then, it, joy expanded. It came right out of her heart and it expressed itself in song. Joy expands when the kingdom comes. But it didn't stop there. Why, why joy, Mary? Well, because God worked on her behalf, but also because God treats people with mercy. Look at verse 50. And His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. Uh, those who fear Him. God treats people with mercy. He treats people with mercy. Those who fear Him are people who have this proper reverence for who He is, who have this kind of internal posture that expresses itself externally in all sorts of ways, in things that we say, things that we don't say, things that we do, don't do, things that we wear, don't wear, uh, attitudes that we take, physical uh, stances that we take, political ideolo uh, ideologies that we hold or let go of, whatever it may be, uh, this kind of internal posture. There's this proper reverence uh, for God. One of the things that's dangerous in our um, kind of Western evangelical world in which we live, which we do, this is where we live, Western evangelical life, um, is that we, we concentrate, and, and I think this is a good emphasis, a personal relationship with God where we have this emphasis of relating to God. God is our Father. We want to relate to Him. Uh, one of the things that can get lost in that is this sense of reverence before God, though. Anybody ever been to Europe and been to a cathedral or 12? You know, anybody, raise your hand real high if you've been to Europe and seen a big honking cathedral. Big honking is a technical term for old buildings like that. You walk in, and everything about it is absolutely not familiar. I mean, you walk in, it's cold, it's loud, I mean loud, like, you know, echoey, you know, it's grand, it's huge. It is the expression of reverence for God in architecture. So you walk in, you're like, oh, I'm really small at this point. That's kind of the point. Because it's this 
posture before God that says, God, you're God and I'm not. You're the Lord and I'm not. You're the king and I'm not. Uh, you're up there and I'm down here. You're big, I'm not. Like, you're powerful, I'm not. Like, reverence for God, this appropriate reverence. Those who fear him, proper reverence, this posture that they take. Uh, <clears throat> people who know God like this are, are familiar with him, yes, uh, but it, it doesn't breed contempt. One of the dangers, as I said, of losing reverence for God uh, is, is that uh, you know, this, our familiarity, if you will, um, will just lead us to say and do things that, that don't honor him as the king, as the Lord, as holy and right. And so our familiarity with God cannot breed contempt. And those who fear him, uh, it doesn't for them. He, she says at the end of verse 49, and holy is his name. Holy is his name. Now he's merciful in his actions, but holy is his name. And then she goes on from generation to generation. God has mercy on people, and he does so to those who fear him and from generation to generation. Now, don't think like trickle-down mercy, because uh, this isn't that. You know, grandpa, son, uh, grandpa, uh, dad, and then son, it's not as if grandpa's mercy gets floated down the chain there. That's not how this goes. It's this generation to generation thing, like God has mercy in one generation for those who fear him, and the next generation comes along. You know what we figure out? God has mercy on that generation too for those who fear him, and the generation after that. In other words, God has a track record of having mercy on people. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. Like As the generations come, uh, and, and the, the, the mercy is in mercy and mercy, and generations come, and there's mercy and mercy and mercy over and over and over again. Um, this ought to prompt in us, Mary would say, this ought to prompt in us greater joy because each generation is experiencing God's mercy and this ought to prompt in us joy. I'll give you an example of this. This past week, uh, Science Fair Awards at one of our kids' schools, run over there, check it out, got invited. Uh, one of ours was getting a little award there and it was awesome. Third, fourth, fifth graders in there uh, and uh, they say, hey, you know, this is what's been going on, and this is the science fair, and this is how this happened, and stuff, and we have some honorable mentions. And so they call it out, little Joey, honorable mention. Little Joey comes running up, and people are like, yeah, good job, Joey. Cynical dad at the back. It was just honorable mention, you know what I mean? They were clapping. <clears throat> oh, and, you know, here's Sarah. She got honorable mention, too. Yeah, Sarah, good job. Shh. Okay, and in fifth place, here, you know, here's fifth place awarded to this person. And it got a little louder. Yeah, come on now. Fourth place goes to, you know, so-and-so. And up they come. Yeah, yeah. And on, you know, third place, it's starting to hit like concert level. Second place, man, you're barely keeping the top on the place. In first place, they announced first place. I'm not kidding. Kids in the middle stands up, get high fives everybody on the way back down the thing. People are like, yeah, you go, man, you go. Yeah. Because... As they got closer, the joy grew and grew and grew and grew. And for every generation, God had mercy. God had mercy. God had mercy. And joy ought to grow because for each generation, you know what we're closer to? When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found. We ought to just, joy ought to just grow like science fair wards. It ought to just build and build and build until we're foot-stomping, excited, blow the roof off of the place, put the sound system down because the people are louder anyway. God has mercy. He treats people with mercy. Um, why joy, Mary? And I love how it expands because she's got this personal thing, right? God worked for me, and then she looks up and she's like, 
Oh, and generation to generation, God has mercy. That's just expanding. Why, why joy, Mary? Uh, because God doesn't tolerate injustice. Look at verse 51. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Let's just pause right there. God doesn't tolerate injustice. In other words, nothing stops joy expanding. Joy expands when the kingdom comes, and nothing is going to stop the kingdom coming. Therefore, nothing stops joy from expanding. Indeed, there is injustice in the world. There's brokenness in the world. There's bad stuff happening in the world. Don't know if you caught the news this morning. We lost 25 brothers and sisters this morning in Egypt when somebody blew up a bomb at a Coptic worship service. 25 people in heaven today with joy unspeakable and full of glory. There's bad stuff in the world, folks. But that doesn't keep the kingdom from coming. And it doesn't keep joy from expanding. He opposes the proud. That's, that's, God's not going to tolerate injustice. He opposes the proud. So he says again in verse 51, shown strength with his arm. He's not just showing off going, oh yeah, sun's out, gun's out, check me out. What he's doing instead, he's not flexing for show. It has a purpose. What's the purpose? He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has taken his arm, if you will, on the, on the, and looked at the, 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 the proud and the stuff, the, the game that they're playing, and he's just swept the board clean like this. He's not going to tolerate pride like that. In fact, two times towards the end of the New, of the New Testament, he's very clear about this. Uh, first in James chapter 4, James, the brother of Jesus, says this, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And then if you missed it, the very next book, 1 Peter says the same thing. Chapter 5, he's talking about church, and he says, Clothe yourselves with humility. Why? Because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. When we talk about this particular issue, we talk about this particular verb, and I want to just point it out again. Opposes. That is a present tense verb. So right this very moment, what is God doing? Opposing the proud. And he's not just opposing the proud, he's opposing the pride in my life. Wherever it stands, wherever it is, you know, kind of pent up, or maybe I just stuck it on a shelf up in a closet so I can bring it out when I need to feel better about myself or whatever. He's opposing that currently right now. But what, what does he promise us? He gives grace to the humble. Here, God doesn't tolerate injustice. Pride so often is the, the, uh, the, the root, if you will, of brokenness and badness in the world, and he opposes that. Secondly, he deposes the entitled. Look at verse 52. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He deposes the entitled. Now, because we live in suburbia, we don't know anybody who's entitled to anything. Right? Okay, just check in. But if there were some people who felt entitled because of their assets. Hey, I have this, therefore I'm entitled to this. Or felt entitled uh, because of their accomplishments. Hey, I've done this, therefore I ought to have that. Or felt entitled because of their connections. I know this and these people, therefore I ought to have access over here. And eventually, they just they get past all of that and say, actually, I exist, and so I'm entitled to like, these things that I want. And what does God say about that? Verse 52, 
He has brought down the mighty from their SUVs. I mean thrones. They're just, oh, my glasses were foggy when I read that. They brought down the mighty from their thrones. But what does he do? He exalts the humble. He has exalted those of humble estate. Why? Because they, the, what the humble know is that the world's not about them. And they're entitled to exactly nothing. They deserve hell. And anything on top of that's gravy, right? Joy expands, and nothing stops that joy from expanding because nothing stops the kingdom from coming. Not the proud, not the entitled. And lastly, verse 53, he has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He reverses our assumed values. We assume that this, this is the problem. It's true in the Bible. It's true today. It's true in the Middle East. It's true here in the middle of suburban Houston. Um, like uh, working underneath all of, these, all, all of this stuff is this assumption. I am at ease because God likes me better than them. Like my life is the way that it is. The goodness that's my life right now is the way that it is because God likes me more. <clears throat> I'm not so sure that's... Uh, over in Luke chapter 18, I won't, I'll just tell the story. You can go read it later. Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 18. A rich young ruler rolls up on Jesus. He goes, hey, Jesus, what, what must I do to have eternal life? Hey, you become a kind of person who keeps the commandments? You're in. Well, which ones? Well, okay, here's a few. Let's start there. Oh, I've done all that since I was this high. Like, that's not a problem for me. Oh, okay, good. Glad you got that mastered. Let's come back with this one. Uh, since you, Just one thing. One thing you lack. Sell everything you have. Uh, give it all away to the poor. Come follow me. You'll have treasure in heaven. Um... Let me get back to you on that. He walked away. The Bible says he walked away. Jesus turned and looked at his disciples like, oh man, how difficult it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle, people. Peter's like, wait, 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 wait. Time out, chief. If, if they can't get in, who can be saved? What's the assumption under that question right there? Hey, this guy's been blessed by God. Look at all of his material wealth. This is a blessing of God. This is the favor of God. I mean, just right there. If we have a lot, if we're at ease, God must like me more than he likes the rest of you. And Jesus reverses this. He just turns it upside down. Um, in the Messiah's kingdom, Jesus is in the business of reversing these values. He's turning the world upside down. Why? Because the world is upside down to begin with. And all he's doing is making it right. These people, he fills the hungry with good things, and those who are kind of self-sustained, he sends away. Oh, you want it on your own? You got it on your own. He's turning the world upside down because the world is upside down to begin with. Can we, can we look just one place, flip about two or three pages to the right, Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. Look at verse 18. Jesus is reading uh, in the synagogue at Nazareth from the scroll of Isaiah. In, this is Isaiah 61. He's quoting, and listen to this. He's using this to describe himself and his mission. The Spirit of the Lord, Luke 4, 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Not, not those who are 
self-satisfied, but to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus is turning the whole world upside down. When the Messiah comes, this is what happens. When the kingdom comes, everything gets righted. All that was crazy before, and it just seems backwards, it's because it is. Jesus flips that back over. That's why joy expands when the kingdom comes, because things are right. Things are right. God's not going to tolerate justice, excuse me, injustice, and nothing is going to keep the kingdom from coming. And because nothing keeps the kingdom from coming, joy expands. Joy expands even in the middle of injustice. So last thing, why joy, Mary? Why joy? Well, because excuse me, God worked on her behalf and it expands. God has mercy from generation to generation. It expands and nothing keeps that kingdom from coming. And it expands to this, that God keeps his promises. Look at verse 54. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. He's not forgotten us and he's not forsaken us. He's not forgotten us and he's not forsaken us. In remembrance of his mercy. Meaning what? One of the great tragedies of social media is people think that they're connected, but they're actually really alone. And the younger you are in the room, the more you probably identify with that. So you can be driving to work and still feel very much alone. This is the thing. You can be in a a tough marriage situation. You can be in a tough parenting situation, tough work environment, all these other things. And you may think to yourself, I don't know if there's anybody else who's with me in this. It may just be me. And God says, I've never left you, and I've never forsaken you. He has not forgotten you, and he has not forsaken you. God keeps his promises. When he said, I'm not going to leave you, and I'm not going to forsake you, guess what? He keeps that promise. He has not forgotten us. He has not forsaken us. And better than that, he has not forgotten you, and he has not forsaken you. In remembrance of his mercy, he has not forsaken you. He has not forgotten you. And secondly, God keeps his promises because this is a single story that he's telling. Look at verse 55. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever, as he spoke to our fathers. So God's telling this single story. He's telling the story that the Messiah will come. He tells Adam and Eve in the garden, hey, there's going to come a seed from the woman and he's uh, going to get a heel strike, if you will, from the, from the snake. But what's he going to do to the serpent's head? He's going to crush it. First picture of the gospel, Genesis chapter 3. God speaks to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to bless you and you will be a blessing. And through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. All the families of the earth are going to be blessed. It's this picture of God raising up a a Messiah. And then he speaks to David. He said, David, one of these days there's going to be somebody on your throne who will never, ever, ever be deposed. Never, ever, ever um, uh, um, move on. Never, ever, ever sleep with his fathers. He's going to reign forever on your throne. The Messiah will come. That's the story that God's been telling. And now here we are at the place in history where the Messiah has come. And so when the Messiah comes, he's going to bring the kingdom. The Messiah will come, and when he comes, he will bring the kingdom. And he did. 
He brought, this, he brought his rule and his reign um, uh, to bear on our lives and on our world. And the Messiah will bring the kingdom and ready for himself a people, a people that the Old Testament describes that Peter picks up as a people who are a holy uh, uh, priesthood, a chosen race, this kind of uh, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Um, this, this people who are ready for himself, ready to interact with God as he is. And he will accomplish this in some unforeseen way but predicted way, how is Messiah going to ready for himself a people? How is he going to bring the kingdom? Not through an army, but through a cross. He's going to die. It is through his death and his resurrection that he will bring the kingdom. And then he's going to come back from the dead. He's going to ascend to heaven. This is the story that God's been telling. And he's going to come back. And when he comes back, what's he going to do? He's going to make everything right. Everything. I say that today because there are things in your world that are not right today. There are things that are broken. There are things that are jacked up. You look at some of the stuff that's going on, some of the stuff that pops up in the headlines, you're like, no, no, no. How can this be? This cannot be. One day, folks, it won't be. One day, the Messiah, as he came once, is going to come again. And when he does, he's going to set everything right. He started, he inaugurated, if you will, the kingdom in his first visit. In the second visit, he's going to consummate it. He's going to bring it fully to bear on your life and mine. And guess what? There's not going to be cancer anymore. There's not, there's not going to be sorrow anymore. There's not going to be weeping anymore. There's not going to be strife anymore. There's not going to be disconnection anymore. There's going to be a, uh, the, the phone call or the email or whatever. It, like, there's going to be right. He's going to make it right. Because he's going to make it right. You know what that means? When that kingdom comes, joy will expand forever and ever and ever and ever. That's why the psalmist says, in his presence is the fullness of joy. And at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. So I'm praying for you this week that when you encounter the kingdom, you'll run into it, it'll run into you. You'll see it then, identify it as it is. Hey, look, that's the kingdom of God right there. I didn't even know it, but boom, there it is. Guess what? It would then let your joy expand to those around you because it's contagious. It was contagious for Mary. We're still talking about her today, the song that she sang. It would be contagious for you and for me. And folks, there are neighbors and friends and family members and other folks out there that we will encounter who need to know this kind of joy. The kingdom needs to come in their life so their joy can expand. Let me pray, and then we'll respond to God.